1: so what are you waiting for get bluehost cloud today by visiting bluehost.com that's bluehost.com
0: hi i'm rena nainen and this is ask lisa the psychology of parenting podcast it's a podcast to help parents better understand their kids Dr. Lisa DeMoore, a psychologist with three decades of experience, and the author of three New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. Both of us are moms ourselves, and we're eager to hear from you. So send us your questions to Ask Lisa at drlisaDemour.com. And you can join our community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The handle is at Lisa Podcast. And also subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel, Ask Lisa Podcast. Episode 132, Never Enough, Confronting Toxic Achievement Culture with Special Guest Author Jennifer Wallace. So Lisa, tell me something about your summer that nobody else knows that was transformative.
2: I had quite a summer, Rina. I'm so glad to be back here for season four, but it was a good summer. And I will tell you, this sounds kind of corny, but it's really true and real Um, I had the honor of being at the Aspen Ideas Festival this summer, and there were two interactions I had that really felt life-changing. One was with Jason Rezaian, who is a Washington Post reporter who was held in an Iranian prison for a year and a half. And I ended up um, in a long conversation with him about his experience. And then the other was Kate Bowler who is a terrific podcaster. I got to be on her podcast. Mm. She's a scholar and um, a writer and also just like a really fun and wonderful person. And she was diagnosed with stage four cancer seven years ago when she was 35, like out of nowhere. And you can't be in close connection with people who have gone through such extraordinary things and not, I think, feel shifted by it. And the, the ramifications for me of that the whole rest of the summer, and hopefully for as long as I can hold on to it, I just have this sense of every day, like, I am the luckiest person I know. I am mm-hmm. so fortunate to have all my great good luck in the world. I am so happy and lucky. And I'm um, really trying to hold on to just how lucky. I am. Gratitude. Gratitude beyond. Gratitude. How about you, Arena? Tell me about your summer. Well, first off, let me tell you, those two are
0: incredible. I follow them. Jason's story is remarkable. And Kate, my gosh. Talk about somebody who got a diagnosis and transformed life for everybody around her, not just for herself. So um, great stories. Well, um, now I feel embarrassed about my transformation. <laughs> what was it? I'm starting to eat 120 grams of protein. <gasps> oh,
2: isn't that hard? It's a lot it of is protein. So
0: hard. I've spent all summer working on this, but transformational for me was learning. I think I ate like five grams of protein a day before I was aware of my eating habits. So, all I'm saying, I scarfed down. <laughs> three eggs this morning (laughs) with cheese and I
2: feel better. So that is my awesome transformational. That is that is actually quite substantial and actually not hard, not easy to do. I I also am trying to up my protein and I strongly recommend like a protein packed smoothie at some point in the day. Like you can really bump up those numbers. I do. You do love your
0: smoothies. But you know, all this focus on weight and and trying to feel bad. I feel like I'm never enough. (laughs) And that is why we are so lucky lucky to have our season starting off with this remarkable journalist and guest i can't wait to tell you guys about jenny wallace she has this book called never enough when achievement culture becomes toxic and what we can do about it she is an award-winning journalist social commentator she's covered parenting and lifestyle trends she's a frequent contributor to the wall street journal and the washington post and after graduating from harvard college Jenny began her career in television at 60 Minutes, where she worked as a journalist for many years. She now lives in New York City with her husband and her three kids. Jenny, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm going
3: to be thinking about that protein tip.
0: <laughs> it's worth thinking about. I swear
2: it's transformational. <clears throat> really, truly. Um, Jenny, hey, it is your publication day. And we are so honored to share it with you. This book is so important. It is so timely. It is going to do so much good for so many families. So thank you for taking time with us today to um, share it with our audience. Thank you guys so much. Before we kick off, I just want to say a little something about Jenny. So I'm an academically trained psychologist. I am a huge snob about how the research that we do gets translated for broad audiences. And there are I can count on one hand, the journalists who I feel do a consistently excellent job of reading our research, synthesizing the research and communicating it to families. And Jenny has always been um, one of those people on a very short list that I keep in my mind. And so um, I've loved her work in terms of the written pieces she's done that are short form. And I am so excited, Jenny, that you now have a whole book.
3: Oh my gosh. Wow. I, I, um, that is, means so much coming from you, a psychologist who not only um, have I interviewed for some of my articles and you also appear in my book, but as a parent, you have really been next to my parents, probably the most transformative person in my own parenting journey. So I am so grateful. Wow. Wow you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All
2: right. Enough of the love fest. Let's get down to business. All right, Jenny, here we go. Your book is about the pressure cooker environment in which kids and families find themselves um, in many communities. How do we get here? What kids are most at risk? Who is most vulnerable? Oh, yeah, it
3: is. um, So let me start by saying I'm a mother of three teenagers. Um, and I am right there with parents in the trenches. Um, and my my son was, you know, entering eighth grade, and I wrote this article um, that appeared in the Washington Post about how students attending what researchers call high achieving schools—those are public and private schools with high standardized test scores—and um, you know, kids that go off to to four year colleges those students attending those schools are now an at-risk group after kids in poverty, kids with incarcerated parents, recent immigrants. It's these students and it's my kids. And so I set out on a four-year journey to research, you know, what was causing this pressure, uh, how it's changed so much, how my, you know, my children's childhood is so, was so different from my own. And so um, I mean, I, I learned so much, It has so deeply impacted my parenting. Um, just one of the things I learned, um, was that, uh, you know, as parents, we tend to personalize instead of contextualize, uh, what we're going through. And, you know, I was feeling the anxiety and the pressure in my own house. And I was thinking this was like a, a Wallace family issue, but when I was speaking with economists, they were talking about how the pressures in our environment, these macroeconomic pressures that are out there in the world, parent this and what I mean by the macroeconomic pressures, the steep divide between the haves and the have-nots, uh, the increasing inequality, the crush of the middle class, globalization, hyper competition, all of these things have, just ratcheted up since my own childhood. And so as a parent, I am absorbing these messages and I may not even be aware of it, but it is coming out in my parenting behaviors. So, you know, when I look back, you know, in the 1970s, when I was growing up, um, life was generally more affordable. You could buy a house, you could afford health care, higher education was more affordable. There was more slack in the system. And so parents had this belief that you know, kids could could make these zigzags in their lives, have some setbacks and and they should be able to recover and they could, you know, hopefully at least live, similar to the life that they're being raised in, you know, raising their own kids in that kind of lifestyle. But increasingly, the world has gotten a lot more expensive. And parents are nervous about raising a child who will be certain to to land up on the right side of that economic divide that we are uh, living in. So that's a long answer to say, There are forces bigger than any one family, any one school, any one community contributing to this anxiety that we feel as parents to raise our kids, you know, to live that kind of fruitful, meaningful life that we want for them.
0: Jenny, this um, survey that we're talking about, it was something you did in early 2020. You developed one of the first parenting surveys of its kind with researchers at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. When you did that study, you kind of go in with some preconceived notions. I'm curious, what surprised you about what you learned?
3: Oh my gosh, so much surprised me. So um, I, as you mentioned, I was working with a researcher and, and he said to me, you know, we really need to get a sample size of a thousand. Uh, but then within a few days, over 6,500 parents had filled it out. I had, yeah, it was, it's an extraordinary sample. Actually, I pulled a couple of questions here in case you wanted to know a little bit about it. I'll read you two things, um, in particular that struck me. I asked parents on a scale from one to four, how much they agreed with this statement. I feel responsible for my children's achievement and success. 75% 75% of parents agreed with yeah. that statement, right?
0: We feel I, responsible. I, I would be the first one. Totally. I mean, I feel responsible. Like there's no question. Like, why is that a question? 100% right? I agree but with you. But do you
3: think your parents felt responsible? Did your parents feel like it was their responsibility to make sure you were academically, extracurricularly, socially, and emotionally successful? Did that, was that
0: a burden on parents? Lisa shaking her head, no. But my Asian parents from India who immigrated, Yes, okay. absolutely. That's like the only Whereas mission. Whereas I life. think
2: my parents were more on the side of like, our job is to keep you fed and safe and out of trouble. Mm. Wow. And if you and we that also would so like for you to get good grades, but that's your problem. <laughs> it's basically, wow. I think, how my folks side, sized it up. That's interesting. Here's,
3: here's wow. another question um, that I asked parents, again, on a scale from one to four, how much they agreed with the statement. Parents in my community generally agree that getting into a selective college is one of the most important ingredients for later life success. 80% of
0: parents (gasps) agreed or strongly agreed. I'm shocked at how different the reactions are between me and Lisa on these questions you're asking. Because I'm like, yes, why is this a question? Why are you surveying
2: this? Of course. And where I'm going, here's why I'm going, and Jenny, you know this, right? the odds of getting into a selective college even if you as a high schooler happen to have cured cancer or won an olympic medal are still are these days these days vanishingly small i mean incredible i mean stanford's admitting 4% of its applicants they're turning down 96% of their applicants and i think those numbers are going to continue to shift so jenny when i hear you say that that 80% of families feels like this is pivotal to future success it just feels like a setup
3: it does i totally agree with you that it feels like a setup and i would say one of the things that i sort of took away from from this study and and from speaking with parents is actually the most uh, i went in search of who were the kids who were thriving despite the pressures that we're talking about in the environment and i wanted to know what what did their parents have in common you know what did they focus on at home what was school like and on this point, the parents of the healthy achievers actually created environments at home
2: that took the kettle off the heat. Mm-hmm. So, in s- how did they do that? I know. Like, what did they do? Because I think there's got to be all of these ways that people think they're doing it, or they mean to do it, and they're actually doing the opposite. So, give us examples. Give us both examples of where we think we're not being, you know, hard on—not not hard, but pressuring kids, but we are, and examples of what you're talking about, about how they got the kettle off the heat.
3: Yes. So I'll give an example from my own home. Um I used to, when my son or I have three teenagers, when one of them would come home from school after studying really hard for the last few days on a test, you know, they'd walk in the door and I'd be like, so how'd it go? How'd you do? Um and what I realized is I am sending the signal to my kids That when they left that morning, I was so worried about them and that test that I thought about it all day long, and that that was the most important thing for me to lead with when I saw them. Um, So, one of the ways I've taken the heat off in my own home is that I now lead with lunch. So, instead of, yeah, so I ask my kids when they walk in the door, you know, what'd you have for lunch today? I talk about things that have nothing to do with
0: their external achievements. And it's just a little shift wow, that's a huge shift. I, I never asked them what they had for lunch or what they ate. I also
2: like how memorable, lead with lunch. <laughs> <Like, yeah. laughs> you'll can you you'll get to other stuff later, but just lead with lunch. It's such a great so way at, to start. At 43, you're not
0: discovering why you had right. all the protein.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that. exactly. How much protein did you have at lunch? That
0: could, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on the Ask Lisa podcast.
2: slash ask Lisa.
0: I was recently watching an interview of the wife of a world leader and in the middle of the interview she reaches over to pull her bra strap up and I thought, boy, this is something all women everywhere are struggling with. This is why I absolutely love Honey Love. I have the crossover bra, which is just so functional, but it feels so good on. I feel like I've got the support without feeling like I've got this heavy-duty bra on. I've been through all the bras. The elastic wears out, the underwire pinches into your skin, you have to hand wash some, you can only wash them this type of detergent, and I just wanted something that takes out all the fuss and will support me day in and day out. Honey Love's not just supporting women, it's empowering women. So treat yourself to the best bra on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash askalisa. You can use our exclusive link to get 20% off. That's honeylove.com slash askalisa to find your perfect fit. And after you purchase, they're going to ask you where you heard about them. We hope you support the show and tell them "Askalisa sent you. Honeys, you deserve this. Free the pain and discomfort and keep the support with Honey Love. So I'm really starting to feel it in my mid-40s, just how much stress, hormone fluctuation... The lack of sleep can really affect the way your skin looks, from dry skin to dark spots and acne. This is why I love One Skin. They can really help. They've got a simple skincare routine that tackles skin issues at the cellular level. I love that this is an all-women team of scientists. One Skin's developed a proprietary peptide called OS1 that's scientifically validated to actually improve the health of your skin beneath the surface, no irritation no complicated multi-step routine. It's so simple. I really have felt the difference in how my face looks after using this product. One Skin is the world's first skin longevity company by focusing on the cellular aspect of aging. One Skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. So get started today. Try it out with 15% off using the code AskLisa at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with the code ASKLISA. And after your purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them the Ask Lisa podcast sent you. Welcome back to the Ask Lisa podcast. Lisa, I don't think snob is the right word. Lisa used snob at the beginning of this podcast, but she does have a very high bar for who comes on this podcast. And I love how much research you put into this. In fact, one of the things you looked at um, was research from the London School of Economics in the UK. They spent the last decade studying what makes some people more vulnerable to mental health issues and they pointed to this rise of perfectionism in young adults over the past 40 years. They said that 33% have unrealistic expectations from parents and society. So what do you think needs to change? Well,
3: according to the lead researcher of that study, Tom Curran, I was actually sitting, I met him in London. I went to London to to talk with him and walk around town and get all the advice I could as a parent on how I could sort of buffer against this in my own home. Um, why is Why the rise? Well... A couple of things. One is that, as I said earlier, parents have become social conduits. We we absorb the pressures uh, in our environment. The bar of success is ever ratcheting up, and parents, you know, the job of a parent, right, is to raise a child who can survive and thrive in the future when we're no longer there. If we are getting messages in our environment that in order to be safe, kids need to be perfect parents are not thinking that explicitly in their head, but they are feeling it. They are feeling these rising expectations and they are sending those messages down to their kids at home. What he said to me, which I I found very useful, again, in my own home, was to take a look at my own parenting behaviors, that a pathway to perfectionism, a very strong pathway, is the parent, most particularly the mother. Hmm. And so we, as mothers, you know, we are send messages of what it means to be a mother, the per- the perfection that is needed. You know, we are, like I said in the survey, we are tasked with creating, you know, what researchers call individualized safety nets for our kids. We live in a society where there are very few structures and social safety nets. So mothers in particular are tasked with weaving these individualized safety nets for each of our children. And it's exhausting. And we are told as parents, as particularly mothers, Things need to look a certain way. We're responsible for these things, and that can breed perfectionism in us, and our
2: kids could look at us and see that modeling. Yeah. Jenny, for me, I would say the biggest takeaway from this book is the singular importance of mattering. And you say in the book that mattering really rests on parents to make happen. Can you unpack all of that for us?
3: yeah oh i'd love to talk about mattering so mattering you know when i was looking for what these healthy high achievers um that i interviewed had in common it was that they felt like they mattered deeply to their parents they felt valued for who they were at their core aside from their achievements aside from their appearance they also felt that they mattered to their peers at school and to their larger community And on the other side of it, they were depended on to add meaningful value back to their families, to their peers, to their communities. So the kids who were really thriving had this high level of mattering that acted like a protective shield. It didn't mean they didn't feel stress and anxiety, but this sense of mattering buoyed them. It, It lifted them up when they were down. The kids who were suffering the most, I found, were the kids who felt like their mattering, their value, was contingent on their performance? Mm. The the other group who was suffering, which was was surprising to me, was um, kids who who felt valued and were very focused on their own resumes, but were never depended on or relied on to mm. add meaningful value back to anyone other than themselves. And so, what they were lacking is really social proof that they mattered. So. They Hmm. might have heard from their parents that they mattered, but they didn't
0: have the proof in the pudding. And the proof in the pudding is adding value. Wow. This reminds me of like Indian parents growing up. It's almost like a joke where you get like a B plus and they come in, they're like, well, why didn't you get an A? Why didn't you get the first place trophy? Like like there's just something culturally embedded. And I love this concept that you have in the book. It just really resonated with me. Um, you call it the puppy dog principle. And you write here, I'm going to read directly from your book. It says, greet the kids at least once a day like the family puppy with total unabashed joy. This includes being physically affectionate with them, playing with them. Oh my gosh, Jenny, I I just like, I can see why, but does this really work with them at the teenage years? They don't even want to
3: acknowledge you. I have to tell you, I am such a huge teenage fan. And I know you guys are here on this podcast too. Our teenagers, at least mine in my own home, are not shying away from the affection. And I'll tell you uh, something that that I heard that's not in the book, but I heard on a radio show when my kids were really little was somebody talking about how when her kids were teenagers, she started giving them facials so that she would be able to touch them and get that touch in if they if they would be uh-huh. so so I've started doing that with my own kids i now like they they might think i have a fixation on skin but i give them facials we do face masks and i rub in the lotion and uh-huh. so i'm getting that affection in even if they don't necessarily want the cuddles
0: you know usually jenny at the end of our show notes we put resources like we will have a link to your book we might have to ask you for what <laughs> facial products yes. you're using on te- <laughs> the teenagers are going
2: for it. Oh i absolutely my love God. that oh my Jenny, back on the mattering just for a minute. Give me some for instances of the kinds of things the kids you talked to, the families you talked to were doing that helped the kid to feel that they mattered, mattered beyond themselves. Like, What are just some of the day-in, day-out things you encountered?
3: Uh, I found one. I mean, I spoke with so many amazing parents, and their wisdom is throughout the book. But one mother in particular stood out to me. And she was talking about how she hammered home the idea that her kids' worth was unwavering, and she did this by every time they had a failure or a setback, she would do this little experiment. She would reach into her wallet, she'd pull out a twenty dollar bill, and she'd say, "Do you want this money?" And the kid would say, "Yes." Then she would very theatrically, you know, uh, crumple it up, smash it on the floor with her dirty shoe, and then dunk it into a glass of water. And she'd ha- she'd she would then <sighs> pull the twenty dollar bill out, soggy, dirty, and say, "Do you still want this bill?" And the child would say yes. And she said, like this $20 bill, your worth doesn't change. Whether you are bruised or broken, you are you. It doesn't matter. You are not your failures, just like this $20 bill. And so, right? That just, that stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one way. Another Mm -hmm. thing that parent really wise parents that I met did was, you know, how some parents have a mandate for sports. They'll say, we don't care what you play, but we want you to be active, you know, all year round. So these parents had a volunteer mandate. So during the school year, they had a set number of hours that their children had to commit to. And they also really were side by side with them. So like one mother worked in a soup kitchen, stocking the pantry, on Saturdays with her kids. And then in the summer, the mandate would would raise in hours. But what this mother said to me was that, you know, sometimes when she didn't enforce the mandate um, and, you know, she'd let, because the kids were busy, she would let them off the hook. She said she noticed something different about them. They became so self-focused on their own ups Mm. and downs. And what this volunteer mandate did for them is that it helped the kids develop an other-oriented mindset, A way to zoom out when they were struggling at school or struggling under things that seemed so big to be able to zoom out and look about look at the challenges that other people are going through and how you can help them through those struggles. Take the the spotlight off of you and and shine it onto others. So those were just two things that I found really I mean, there's so many more I could get into.
0: You actually have this chapter called Taking the Kettle Off the Heat. Can we really confront and do something about this grind culture? Oh, I think not
3: only can we, I think we must. And I think we must for ourselves as parents. We are, you know, we talk a lot about, um, rightfully so, the anxiety and depression among our youth. But what researchers are finding and what I saw in my own research was that parents are struggling just as much. There is anxiety, depression, Mm -hmm. substance abuse disorder. Parents are too busy or too shy to go and, and seek the help they need. But one of the big takeaways of the book is something that researcher Sunya Luthar, who is, uh, was one of the leading researchers on resilience in the world, she has recently passed away. But she said to me the number one intervention for any child in distress is to make sure the primary caregiver, most often the mother, that her well being is intact, that her support system is intact, because wow. a child's resilience rests fundamentally out of parents resilience and the parents resilience wow. rests on their relationships yes yoga is great taking walks in nature are wonderful getting enough sleep is extraordinarily you know important for managing our own well-being mm. but the number one thing we can do is to find one or two or three friendships where we can be our full selves where we can be seen and known and accepted even when we're down Um, to be that source of support for us so that we could shore up our resilience so that we could be there as first responders to our kids' struggles.
2: Wow. Wow. Wow! Um, Jenny, we put out a call to our listeners for questions about this topic. First of all, you should note we got tons, absolutely tons. Like you have really put your finger on a topic that is so critically important to families right now. And there were two we got over and over and over again. And it's so interesting to go through questions and be like, oh, here's one. Oh, there it is again. There it is again. There it is again. And there were two that came up repeatedly. The first one, how do you encourage kids to reach for their true potential without exerting toxic pressure? Oh,
3: oh my gosh. I love this question. And I asked the same question to Rick Weisbord, who's a, a psychologist and um, affiliated with Making Caring Common up in Harvard. And you know, I said to him, how do I sort of instill this healthy motivation? And, and what he said to me was something that I remind myself often, that kids gain this really sturdy sense of self that enables them to reach for things less by being praised and pressured and more by being known. And what he means by that is instead of praising your kids to notice their strengths, to help them use those strengths to overcome obstacles, to reach for things, that is where kids can get that healthy fuel that they need to stay motivated. You know, parents can use that kind of healthy fuel, or we could use what I call dirty fuel, which is criticism or, you know, withholding affection when our kids are not living up to our expectations.
2: I'll add comparison to that. I hear that a lot from kids. Like yes, you're exactly. part of dirty as part of dirty fuel. Like you're talking about what my older sister did, you're talking about what my older brother did, what the neighbor's kid is doing. Like I hear that a surprising amount from kids.
0: I might be one of those parents. I might be one of those parents. <laughs> might be one of those parents <laughs> no, I'm realizing. Yeah. No, but I, I just am realizing. So just to put this into perspective, I, like let's say my child is struggling in math, but I want to tell that child. Look at your cousin who has put all this effort and is doing so great in math. But I'm using dirty fuel. So in a situation like that where I know they need to get their math grades up because it matters for college, how do I stop
2: myself from doing that? Like, what should I do in that moment? Lisa, do you want to take that? No, you take take it. And then If if there's anything I think there's still to be said, I'll say it. Okay, great. I would
3: ask myself in those pressured moments, what would my best self do? What would the parent that I really want to be do in this moment? Um, What I have learned is something Mark Brackett at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence calls taking a meta moment. So in those moments where I'm feeling triggered as a parent, I work really hard. I don't always get it right, but I work really hard to take that moment and think to myself, 20 years from now, what's the story I want my children to tell about their childhood how do i want them to describe my parenting to their friends and to their children and then i say am i helping them tell that story and how could i help so th- so what i do in those moments when i feel the, the trigger is i try really hard to take a breath i sometimes text a friend to ask you know what what, what would you do you know i lean on my my sources of support and you know, Lisa gave me excellent advice about how we can help motivate kids without that toxic pressure. And that is to, you know, help kids develop work habits about how work gets done in our home, not focused on the shiny outcome, but rather how the work is a, is approached. Because that's something as a parent we could help to scaffold. Um, so anyway, that's a really long answer to your question. <laughs>
2: And, and actually I think then to just say one more thing to like kind of keep putting it on the ground, you know, when I hear about a kid who's struggling academically, the first question I have is what's getting in the way, right? What's getting in the way. And so Jenny, like where you took it, like work habits, usually that's what's getting in the way, unless there's an undiagnosed learning disorder, it's usually the work habits. So I love that idea of centering on, you know, where does work get done? How does it get done? When does it get done? Do we have good habits? Do we have good routines? Um, And focusing on that, which kids are going to need a work ethic no matter what, as opposed to the outcome.
0: As we're starting school, so what you're saying, like I should focus on, parents should focus on, is making sure there's structure around how and when the work gets done. And that could, instead of saying, hey, your cousin's doing better than you at math, setting that up might help down the road. I would say so, yeah. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And it's these habits, it's these work habits um, and, you know, that's a way that it, it's a rule. It could be a family rule in your house. Like, here's how we do our work in our family. This is sort of the rule of our family. Like, I, I remember when my 17 year old was in middle school, I set a family rule where well, actually he was in eighth grade. The phone goes into our master bedroom on the far side of the bed uh, so that it's not a distraction on his table. And he can take 20 minute breaks. So go and check, and you know, text with his friends for a couple of minutes, and then go back. But what I wanted him to understand is that work needs to be done in an uninterrupted way, and our kids often just are are not getting that practice, and it's practice.
0: Hmm. So I know we focused a lot on, on academics. We got this question asking, "How do I help my daughter to not see her grades and school achievement as her value?"
3: Yes. This is uh, something that I've seen in my own house too. I mean, when you think about all the pressures our kids are absorbing all day long by their peers, by their peers' parents. So what the wise parents and the psychologist that I interviewed told me is parents at home really need to make home a safe base to recover from that pressure. And so one of the simple things I did with my own daughter when she was in eighth grade and, and stressed about her grades was I I wrote on a, on a post-it note, your worth does not equal um, your grades. And I said to her, I want you to remember this. And and she actually put it on her computer, on the, the keyboard of her computer as a constant reminder. I think what parents need to remember is Every day our kids are being fed these messages. So every day at home, we need to buffer against them. We need to be the counterbalance. We need to talk about what we love and admire about who they are, their, their humor, their kindness, how caring they are, and focus on those things at home. Our kids are getting enough pressure outside the
2: home when it comes to academics. I love that. Mm-hmm. All right, Jenny, one of the things that you say in your book that I think is so critical is that it's really important to build capacity for setbacks and failures. The kids need to be able to work with these. How do you do this?
3: Yes. One of the ways that I've helped my kids, again, through the research, is to model myself, my own setbacks and failures. So I'll give you one little quick example. My daughter was struggling with uh, an English paper. And she was like, "Oh, I can't do this." Her teacher had given her a lot of edits, and she was really discouraged. And so I brought her over to my laptop and I pulled up my first article for the Washington Post Science section. And my very seasoned editor had really put a lot of red marks on my on my first turn in of my assignment. And my daughter was like, "Oh my God, that's a bloodbath. Like, look at it. I can't believe they let you write for them." And I said to her, "You know, initially, I was embarrassed. But then I looked at it as, boy, this editor was really giving me a gift. She was investing in me. And so what I've tried to do in my own family to sort of raise that capacity for failure is to normalize it, to normalize the shame that we might feel, to talk about it, to give it a name. Um, And then to model what I say in my own mind out loud. So I I call it living my life out loud with my kids. Mm. And I just tell Mm -hmm. them how, how I worked through it and how I framed it myself.
2: Oh. I love that.
0: Oh, I love I that. love it. That. yeah, that is so great. You know what, Lisa, that's one of the biggest things what Jenny's talking about being open about your mistakes in front of your kids. I think there was a generation before us that you would never do that. Like that's that is a ding on your authority almost like you would never consider that. And you've helped me understand now, Jenny, with what you're saying, that being open to expose explaining and saying I made a mistake and telling your kids like that could be really helpful in their development. Jenny, I also loved at the end of the book, you say this, um, and I'm going to quote directly from it. I've even stopped telling my kids that I just want them to be happy, happiness and well-being. I've come to realize are the byproducts of living a life where we feel valued and add value to others. So are you saying here, it's not about having happy kids. It's about having kids who lead a life with purpose and meaning. That's exactly what I'm saying.
3: And what I'm saying is I... I want for my children a deeper life than what happiness really provides, which is just a temporary boost. I want them to have a life of meaning, of service to others, of of providing value to other people, of of knowing their strengths and how to use them to help their society. So that's what I want for them. So I no longer solve for their happiness. I solve for their mattering.
2: That's so good. I love it. Mm. I love it. Jenny, thank you for spending time with us today, and congratulations on this incredibly useful and important book. I'm so glad it's out in the world. I love it. The book is called Never Enough, When Achievement
0: Culture Becomes Toxic, and What We Can Do About It. Jenny Wallace. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both so much. Wow, Lisa, you really wanted to have Jenny on at the start of the season. I now see why she is just tremendous. The book is really—I enjoyed reading it. What do you have for us for parenting to go?
2: So Jenny called a really important question about what it is we want kids to aim for in their lives, and she so gorgeously focuses on mattering and um, what it lines up with. Rena is research that we've done for a long time on what contributes to well-being at midlife, and it turns out it's not achievement, it's not financial. Security, once you're, you know, not impoverished, once you're securely above the poverty line. But that it comes down to three things. Um, One is having good relationships, which Jenny talked about. Another is doing work that you find meaningful, mattering. And the third is feeling good at the work, being competent. And Jenny talked about work habits. And so um, I just love how she has backward engineered in this book all of the things parents want to focus on to land at the place in midlife for their kids where we do see high levels of well-being. So relationships, doing work that matters, and feeling good at it. Wow, you just broke down what really matters when I've been focusing on
0: academics, which is was a big eye-opener for me as to why that shouldn't be the focus.
2: Yeah, but you know, you're not alone in this because mm-hmm. it's what we can focus on in the minute, and so we do. And so it's really helpful to have a roadmap for what else to focus on if we want our kids to grow up to thrive as adults.
0: I love that. Well, it was so powerful.
2: I am so excited
0: to be back with you, my friend. We've got a wonderful season and some tremendous guests coming up. Next week, we are going to have from the White House, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, two-time U.S. Surgeon General, and he's going to be joining us. So looking forward to that conversation. I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week.